So we have, uh, we're in week two of Revelation chapter six, and we've crossed this boundary in the book, okay? Um, we've become familiar with the outline of Revelation, of Revelation, which helps us understand this daunting book, this intimidating book. Many of you got flyers as you were walking in, and it gives us a good outline of the book. In fact, why don't we go ahead and we'll look at that chart um, of the outline and, uh, in your, the rainbow colors there, uh, with the red and the, in the yellow and, and such gives us the divine outline text with the, which is in chapter one, verse 19, where it says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Okay, so uh, we have a, a three-part breakdown of this book. First thing is, John, write the things that you've seen. And I believe that's chapter one there in the orange. It's this chapter of him seeing Jesus. It sets the tone for the rest of the book, a revelation of Jesus. Uh, and here he, he sees Jesus, who he has seen. Remember, John was always so stoked that he was one of those privileged people who was an eyewitness of Jesus. But the second part of this outline is write the things which are. And I believe that encompasses chapters two and three in the blue there, which is known as the church age. Uh, Seven letters written to seven actual churches in Turkey or Asia Minor, um, but that very well present a panoramic picture of of the scope of church history from the early church to the persecuted church, to the compromising church under Constantine, to the Roman Catholic church, to the uh, Protestant reformation, the church of the dark ages, uh, the lukewarm church, uh, the faithful church in the last days. These are the churches that actually are even represented for today as we are in this age of the church here in 2019 in a local church in Prineville. And then I believe we have a bit of a hinge there where we have the things which will take place after this. And this is where uh, it gets into the future. It gets into prophecy where chapter one of verse four going into verse uh, chapter four, verse one of chapter four gives us what uh, appears to be some sort of rapture. At the very least, John is raptured as he is caught up to the throne room of heaven through a door that was open for him. And Jesus says, come up here. And as you study the rapture, the exact same thing takes place for Christians uh, where there is a harpazo in the Greek or a raptus in the Latin, where there's a rapture of the church up into the presence of the throne room of God. And we have chapters four and five, which shows us a group of people who could only be the redeemed, who could only be saints, who've been redeemed from every tribe, tongue, people, group, and nation. And they worship God the Father, and they worship God the Son in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they, uh, they worship him for his creation. They worship him for his sacrifice on the cross. And uh, it's a beautiful scene. And there in that scene, the father is holding a scroll with seven seals in his right hand. And, uh, and, and everyone grieved because no one was found in heaven or earth or under the earth to open the scroll and to loose its seals and to look at it. Uh, and just as John was overcome with grief because no one could open this scroll, uh, one of the elders says, hey, don't cry. Be, be quiet. Uh, there is someone. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And, and John looks over and sees the lion, but the lion looks like a lamb, looks like a lamb that has been slain. And he goes and he takes this scroll out of the right hand of the father. And when he grabs this scroll, all of heaven, angels and saints alike erupt in praise and worship him for he is the one who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And that leads us into chapter six, where we are at, where we set it up last week, that every time Jesus opens one of these seals off of this scroll, it is a different um, judgment. It is a different outpouring of wrath upon the Christ rejecting world. And I take great comfort that I will not be here at that time. And if you're a born again Christian, you won't be here at that time for we've been kept out of this hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole earth. 
Um, there's different people with different understandings of that. And as much as I've studied it, I've landed it. Those that are the bride of Christ will not be the ones to partake of the wrath, but they will be uh, up in heaven preparing themselves for the marriage supper of the lamb. Uh, and so uh, that's chapter six begins this red period called the tribulation. Halfway through, it gets really bad and it's called the great tribulation. And then uh, towards the end, we just have some beautiful times of the reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years, known as the millennial reign of Christ, the great white throne judgment that is, um, uh, you know, the, the non-believers of Jesus being uh, cast into the lake of fire because they did not believe in Christ. And then the beautiful heaven and the new heaven and the new earth, chapters 21 and 22. So you have a flyer with that in front of you. You can take it home, slip it in your Bible. On the back side is an H.A. Ironside chart that is also helpful in this time. But we saw last week that verse one of chapter six in Revelation that John saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. We're not going to get a lot into this, this guy, this first horseman of the apocalypse, because we looked in depth at him last week. So get on our YouTube channel, Calvary Primeville, or download our podcast or whatever. There's lots of ways to listen to it. Um, but what I would say is in studying this, this first thing to happen during the tribulation period is that the Antichrist is going to come on the scene and God in his sovereignty is going to give him ability to conquer, to be conquering and to conquer uh, for a period of time. He has a fake crown on his head or he has uh, a lesser crown than a king would wear. He has a, 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 a wreath crown like you would see in the Olympics, something of, of branch uh, made out of branches. And, uh, and he has a bow, but with no arrows. And as you study the scripture, we looked at it last week, the book of Daniel especially um, would tell us that this, is, uh, this would be the man of sin or the son of perdition, or as John calls him, the Antichrist. And something that he is going to do as you study the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation is he is going to come on the scene. Now imagine... Chapter four, verse one has happened. The church has been raptured. We're going to look in a little bit of the number, the numeral significance of what that would be like on the earth. But imagine if all the Christians, the truly born again on the earth were raptured and taken to heaven. Imagine what that would do on the globe and what would happen in society. And people would be wondering where have all my loved ones gone or where have all the cowboys gone? And you know, that beautiful song. Okay. Um, you know, what, what's happened? And, and someone has got to come on the scene and bring some sort of hope and peace and, and has got to lead the world into recovery from this great catastrophe. We don't even know what have aliens come or some sort of another dimension that we've crossed into. Where are all these people? And a man would come on the scene. And something we know that this man is going to do is he's going to be golden tongued. He's going to be a fantastic orator. And he is going to set up a false covenant of peace and something that that covenant of peace is going to do is going to bring peace between Israel and the Muslims so that the temple can be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Okay. That's going to be a temporary peace. It's going to be just long enough uh, for the temple to be rebuilt. And, uh, and there's a lot to get into revelation. We'll get into that, but we're going to see that that peace doesn't last all that long. Now, these are uh, these first four horsemen of the apocalypse, beginning with the white one. Some would understand, and I'm not going to argue with them. I, I can see where they're coming from, and, and I can see how there's almost a blending. That the, that the things that have happened during the four horsemen of the apocalypse um, are actually things that are kind of beginning now. As Billy Graham said, you can hear the hoof prints now. You can hear the hoof beats now um, of what's going to happen then. You can almost hear them coming. You see these things happening. And that's something that Jesus actually even said. And so today I want you to keep your finger in revelation chapter six, because we are going to be going through it today. But I also want you to go over to Matthew chapter 24. Okay. You see Matthew chapter 24 is what's called the Olivet discourse. 
And if you're wondering about end times and what's going to happen with the rapture and the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus, well, here you have all of it. That's why it's called the all of it. No, that's not why it actually was spoken on the Mount of Olives. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And if you jump down to verse eight of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says all of these things that are going to be happening are the beginning of sorrows. Okay. The beginning of sorrows. Or if you have a new American standard version, it says it's the beginning of birth pangs. Now for just a moment, imagine uh, many of you have uh, been pregnant. You've given birth, you know, the whole Thing. You know the order, you know the feelings, you know what to expect, especially if you've had multiple kids. But as you know, if you would kind of liken your labor and your pregnancy all the way to labor, um, imagine that and transpose it to, to the end times and to eschatology. As a woman is going to give birth, it begins with her feeling something a little different. You know, and I don't know, I mean, this is just my impression, so it's going to like... <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> okay. Okay, I don't know. But, you know, it's like something's changed. Something's ch- Okay. Uh, you feel things are different. Things are changing. You begin to grow. Things get bigger. Movement begins to happen, right? You know, it's just full on aliens inside you. You can see the toes. I mean, remember those times like hands, like pressing through, right? There's movement that's happening. There's a certain gestation period that is given to you until a new pain is more frequent and more intense. Now, many of these things have always taken place, but when they become more frequent and more intense, It's a sign that the labor is coming. And so if you go back to verse one of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's the week before his crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus goes out of the temple and his disciples came to show him all the buildings of the temple. And I always just picture like that they're country bumpkins from Galilee, you know, and they're like, Look at all these buildings, they're huge. You know, and the temple was known as one of the wonders of the world. And so they're they're just looking at all the gold and all of the architecture. It's just incredible. And uh, and Jesus says to them, do, do you not see all these things? Assuredly I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So he's saying the temple's gonna be destroyed. And what's amazing is you can go to Jerusalem, you go to Jerusalem today, you go to the Temple Mount, and just in the last 30 years, they have uncovered these temple stones that were tossed off the Temple Mountain. Uh, the story goes that Rome was besieging Jerusalem, and after about a year of, of the siege, they finally broke through, and Titus Vespasian, the commander, the son of, of the uh, Caesar, um, but the, the um, commander of the army said, don't harm the temple. I fear this God. I fear a lot of gods, but I do fear this God. Let's not make him mad. And one of the soldiers in a drunken uh, stupor partying tossed a torch into the temple. It lit curtains on fire. It lit the whole temple on fire. And the gold of the temple, about $3 billion worth of gold, melted and seeped between the cracks of the temple stones. And so the soldiers had to take every stone off and get the gold. Um, and that's really the history of how in 70 AD the temple was destroyed, just as Jesus said. Nobody believed him. What do you? No, it would never be destroyed. We're fu- and, uh, and it was destroyed within some of these people's lifetime as they watched this. And so uh, he goes on to say, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse 3 of Matthew 24, the disciples came to him privately. And they said, tell us, When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so as you read Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus answers these three questions. When will the temple be destroyed? What will the sign of your coming be? And what will be the sign of the end of the age be? And as you're reading the Olivet Discourse, you have to understand that the writers write 
with a telescoping lens. As he tell the story, there's times where he's talking about the temple being destroyed. There's times where he's going to talk about the siege of Jerusalem. There's times where they're going to talk about the, um, the tribulation period. There's times he's going to talk about the Antichrist. There's times he's going to talk about the second coming and the judgment of the people that are still on the earth, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. I mean, he covers a lot and sometimes it's over here and here. But as he talking, he was talking, it made sense to them. But you ought to understand there's like a telescoping lens As you read that and all that to say, one of the first things that Jesus gets into in the Olivet Discourse is that one of the first things to happen is that there will be many false Christs that come on the scene. And last week we looked at what John says in first John. He says, now, you know, it's towards the end of the times because many antichrists have come on the scene. And that's just a sign of the big antichrist that will come on the scene. You know, I'm not trying to be weird. I know that a lot of people that get into eschatology, they get weird, you know, you know, I mean, it's just strange. And I'll, I'll be the first to admit, um, whether, whatever their position they take so many people, they forget the rest of the book here and they just kind of get in here and they're like, ah, dragons and beasts, you know, he's coming, you know. And they try naming all this different stuff, stuff that we do not know. We cannot be unduly dogmatic. And, and I don't want to be, you know, people like, oh, he said antichrist. He's one of those wackos, you know. I, I am. I'm a weirdo for sure. But I just want to use biblical language. And the biblical language is that anyone who would t- try to take the place of Jesus and the true gospel is called an antichrist. And what that really means is in place of Christ. Okay. So there's a lot of people, even in the world today, they're just trying to take Jesus's place. They're preaching false gospels. They're trying to get a following. That's what's happening today. And the man that rides the white horse will come and he's going to come and he's going to do so many things that really mimic Jesus, trying to take Jesus's place. That's one of the first things to happen. And so with the birth paying picture that we're thinking of already, you know, we're going through it today. You just do some Google searches on people that say they're Jesus. It's weird. They're strange. All right. Um, it's happening today and it's getting more and more. And you're going to see that happening until the big one. Okay. Until the day of labor comes all that to say is we're moving on finally in our chapter to where we see the second seal take place. The second seal, which is a red horse, a warfare on earth. And you might remember last week we were joking about how, um, when my wife sees horses, at rodeos and ranches, I sit there and I'm like, look at all the beautiful animals. And we were at the Polina rodeo and she's like, they all look the same to me, you know? And I'm like, but there's black ones and reds and palominos and come you know. And she's like, I just see like all the same. And I'm just like, oh. and we were joking about it even last Sunday. And we're talking about, well, there's different colors of horses in the book of revelation. She's like, well, that's a horse of a different color. And so I said, I'm going to use that, honey. Okay, so we do move on to a horse of a different color, the red horse. And when he opened the second seal, by the way, if I've confused you, we are back in Revelation. But we're going to go back to Matthew 24. So just get ready. All right. So we're in Revelation chapter six, verse three. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. And so you want to note that the color of the second horse is fiery red, which rightly depicts his mission of bloodshed and slaughter. You want to note that it was granted to the one who sat on this horse to take peace from the earth. You know, this isn't a time where God's not in control. This is a time where God is doing what he said he would do. He is judging a Christ-rejecting world for their sin and for their blasphemies against them. And for every opportunity that was given to them to receive him, they denied the Holy One and the Just One. And they worshiped the created things rather than the Creator who is blessed Forever, And in his justice, he must pour out his wrath. He must do it because he is a just and righteous judge. And so here we see him doing just that. And he grants 
this one on the red horse to do this task of bringing bloodshed and slaughter onto the earth. It was given to him. It was granted to him. He was able to bring commotion and instability. He was able to do what the Greek language tells us is he would slaughter and he would kill by violence. He's given this great sword, which speaks of a sword for warfare, a sword that brings discord and that brings death. And so as this second seal is opened, this amazing heavenly scene takes place in a fiery red horse, tramples out onto the scene, telling people to kill each other. This time of peace from the one on the white horse doesn't last too long. And something to note about the tribulation period is that it will be a very violent time. Much killing will happen upon planet Earth. It's a time that Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse has never been seen on the Earth before. So think about times of history where mass genocide, mass violence, mass killings. We've never seen anything like this period that we're going to see here. Some would say that the great sword is some sort of nuclear warfare. It is a great and tremendous warfare that we're reading of in the Greek. This increase of wars comes with the one on this uh, fiery red horse. And so let's just pause and we'll break over to what Jesus says concerning the signs of the times. And in Matthew 24, 6... He says, after antichrists are coming on the scene, he says, don't listen to them. He says, the second thing that's going to happen, that's going to be birth pangs, is that you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now, at this time, see that you're not troubled. For all these things have got to come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So it's here in the Olivet Discourse that we've got more of the, the signs of the coming, the birth pangs building up to what we would see as the red horse that will eventually be the labor, the giving birth of this period that will lead into him finally coming back. Uh, an increase of wars takes place. Now, granted, on the earth, we've always had wars. Only 8% of recorded history has been totally at peace. But interestingly enough, it's never been like the last 100 years. Two Russians studied military conflicts. In the 12th century, they saw that there were 2,678 conflicts. In the first 25 years of the 1900s, there were 12,835. All right, so a whole century having about two and a half thousand. The first 25 years of the, of the 20th century 12,835 different conflicts. A hundred million people were killed in the 20th century. And now we've come to what is called the nuclear age. The nuclear age, which has war by the megaton. One bomb alone has more destructive power than both sides in World War II We've got the U.S., the U.K., France, China, India, Pakistan, North Korea, and Israel who all have nuclear capability. One professor from Harvard said that if a 20 megaton nuke bomb hit Toronto, it'd be within a millisecond. There would be a hole the size of a skyscraper in the ground and heat the temperature of the sun would kill one million people. And it's interesting, you can actually go to uh, this website and you can pick a bomb and say, what kind of destruction would this bomb do? And so a little boy bomb, if it was dropped in Prineville, would wipe out all of Prineville completely. One bomb, okay? 
a czar bomb, T-S-A-R, like the Russian czar, a czar bomb would wipe out all of Bend, Redmond, Prineville, Madras, and a good portion of the Deschutes National uh, Forest. And the studies say if you saw a blast from one of these bombs, even from 300 miles away, your eyes would be burnt out and the area would be uninhabitable for centuries. Okay. Now, as you study warfare and conflicts, it was really World War One that was a game changer. And if you're into history, check out Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Uh, he's not even a believer, but he calls this World War I study the road to Armageddon. And he just talks about what happened in World War I. It was, just, it was like going from the medieval times to all of a sudden there's machine guns and tanks and, and everything escalated uh, dramatically and drastically. In this time with the red horse, there will be assassination and civil unrest, riots in the streets, rebellion against authority will run rampant. No one will be safe. One will be living in constant fear of life, not knowing who to trust, which is what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 10. Many will take offense. They will betray one another. They will hate one another. Peace has been taken from the earth at this point. Anarchy and worldwide bloodshed are signatures of the last days. World War II General Omar Bradley once delivered an Armistice Day address in Boston. And he said this, With the monstrous weapons man already has, Humanity is in danger of being trapped in this world by its moral adolescence. Our knowledge of science has clearly outstripped our capacity to control it. We have many men of science, too few men of God. We have grasped the mystery of the Adam and rejected the Sermon on the Mount. Man is stumbling blindly through a spiritual darkness while toying with the precarious secrets of life and death. The world has achieved brilliance without wisdom. Power without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. We know more about war than we know about peace. More about killing than we know about living. This is our 20th century's claim to distinction and to progress. And so we just know, we don't know exactly what all this looks like, but it's just interesting to do just simple studies on what Jesus says will come to pass and happen and get bigger and bigger towards the day of labor. And it's clearly escalating. The third seal we move into is the black horse who brings famine on earth. So we're back in Revelation. We're in chapter six and we're looking at verse five. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius. And three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. And so now we have a black horse, you know, you horse lovers, a beautiful black steed comes out on the scene now. And the one who rides it has a pair of measuring scales in his hand. This blackness signifies famines that will take place in the beginning outset of the tribulation. Now, the horse before was red, bringing warfare and civil unrest. And it's been said that war has a close companion. It has an ever-present partner. Its name is famine. Conquest, war, famine, these things always tend to show up at the same time together. William and Paul Paddock warned us in their book, Famine, in 1975, quote, today, hungry nations, tomorrow, starving nations. 
John MacArthur notes that, quote, the color black on this horse is associated with famine in Lamentations chapter 5, verse 10. Famine is a logical consequence of worldwide war as food supplies are destroyed and those involved in food production are killed. Now let's see what Jesus has to say about this in the Olivet Discourse back in Matthew chapter 24, verse 7. He says that signs of these things coming to place are that nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdoms. And then what happens? There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. That's that verse of the birth pain, excuse me, taking place. There's this interesting statement that comes from the throne of God. And normally we want to say amen to whatever comes from the throne of God, right? And, and I think many of you were like, should I say amen with this whole quart of wheat for denarius and barley? I mean, those prices are astronomical, okay? A quart of wheat is enough to feed a family uh, for a day. And a denarius was a day's wage. So essentially what's happening in this period of God's judgment is that in the midst of all that's happening, uh, in the midst of it all, uh, it'll take a man's daily earnings just to feed his family. But you can also, you know, there's this little sale rack, a blue light special during the tribulation. And it's that you could also get three quarts of barley for that day's wage. Now, barley was the food for animals. It's a little bit less quality of food. And uh, if you like a good beef barley soup, then, you know, you're totally settling. You know, I'm just kidding. Um, But it's just the lesser food and you can get a little more of that for your day's wage. So wheat and barley will be so scarce that they will be very expensive. The study is that this inflation price is 10 to 16 times above normal, according to prices that were cited by Cicero for wheat that was sold in Sicily, okay? So this voice comes out though and says, do not harm the oil and the wine. Couple different thoughts on that. My best understanding as I read is it's that those who live in luxury that can afford the oil and the wine, the fine things, you're on a wine budget or you're on a beer budget, what's your budget, you know? The wine and the oil will not be harmed at this specific time. They'll be wealthy. They'll be able to kind of take care of themselves for a little bit of this first period of the tribulation period. And how interesting as we even live in luxury in our day and age, we're ignorant of those who are suffering in the world around us. In 1970, three scientists, one's named Paul Ehrlich, said that the 1970s began the age of the famine where he says a third of the world is well-fed, a third is poorly fed, and a third is starving to death. Some research shows that in 2010, there were 22,184,000 deaths from starvation. That's 63,000 a day, 2,600 an hour, or 43 deaths a minute just from starvation. 43 deaths a minute, people dying in the very painful way of starving to death. What helps to add to famine? Raising oil prices brings more famine. The pollution from the warfare and the acid rain, the quality of food that's not what it once was. Population explosions cause famine. And this is going to be helpful to know in the, in, the, in the verses to come. But it took from Noah's ark and the flood clear up to 1850, just before our civil war, to get the population of the world to be a billion people. Noah's ark to just about the civil war. Oh, we finally reached that billion mark. From 1850 to 1930... We had another billion 
We are at 2 billion. Another 30 years, 1930 to 1960, we were at 3 billion people. 30 years. It's not getting better in case you're wondering where I'm going with this. Okay. From 1960 to 1975, 15 years, we got in another billion, 4 billion people. Now we are at seven, over 7 billion, pushing 8 uh, people uh, in this world. Part of this population growth, Jesus says, and, and part of this period with the black horse, if you will, the birth pangs leading up to it, is not only is there famine, but Jesus said that there's also going to be pestilence in this time. A result of famine is disease, poor nutrition. When you have population plus famine plus war, you have disease. In America, we have one doctor for every 572 people. East Asia has one doctor for every 2,000 people. In Africa, there's one doctor for every 17,000 people. This pestilence is going to make everything worse. Webster's defines pestilence as a contagious or infectious epidemic or disease that is virulent and devastating. And now we have, of course, our minds all go to AIDS. Changing its form, resisting medicine. Let me quote from... um, Uh, avert.org, the origin of AIDS. The origin of AIDS and HIV has puzzled scientists ever since the illness first came to light in the early 1980s. For over 20 years, it's been the subject of fierce debate and the cause of countless arguments with everything from a promiscuous flight attendant to a suspect vaccine program being blamed. So what is the truth? Just where did AIDS come from? The first recognized case of AIDS occurred in the USA in the early 1980s. A number of gay men in New York and California suddenly began to develop rare opportunistic infections and cancers that seemed stubbornly resistant to any treatment. At this time, AIDS did not yet have a name, but it quickly became obvious that all the men were suffering from a common syndrome. Now, thinking of the birth pangs involved in this, UN AIDS estimates that 32.9 million people were living with HIV AIDS worldwide at the end of 2007. That was up from 29.5 million in 2001. So about, seven, uh, about uh, 3 million growth in a short period of time. It'll get worse as the black horse rides. We read that there, uh, Jesus also tells us there will be earthquakes in various or diverse places. In just a little bit, Revelation will speak of these earthquakes. But let me just give you a little bit of a, a chart in your brain on the increase of some of these. In the ninth century, there was one major earthquake. In the 11th century, there were two In the 13th century, there were three. In the 16th, there were two. In the 17th century, there were two. In the 19th century, there were nine. In the 20th century, there were 40. And in 1950, it began to double every 10 years. We've witnessed many giant earthquakes uh, recently that have caused uh, tsunamis, Uh, have caused great devastation, even in Haiti, in Nepal, uh, places where you would see nothing of the magnitude that they've seen. Nepal had this giant earthquake in 2015. It was bigger than what they'd ever seen before. Even a non-Christian geologist said that after studying earthquakes, they go in the cycles of birth pangs of a woman in intensity and frequency. Moving on in our seal judgments, the fourth seal in chapter six of Revelation, verse seven, brings about a pale horse. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth 
to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. And so we now we have a, a pale horse, some sort of a dun or a pale grayish brown. It's interesting. The Greek word here for pale is chloros, which is where we get our English word chlorine and chlorophyll. It's the color of a decomposing corpse. Now, the interesting thing about this horseman is that he's not alone. The name of one who was writing its name was uh, Death, but he had a companion following close behind him known as Hades. Death and Hades. These are two bad hombres. You don't want to get into a tangle with anyone whose name is Death or anyone who hangs out with his friend Hell or Hades. All right, don't go down these alley, dark alleys when these guys are around. I mean, you got double trouble. Uh, I remember my grandpa, Buck, always used to say, he'd, he'd go, this one's made of iron, and this one's made of steel. If this one don't get you, this one will, you know? And uh, I'm like, Hades and death, and death and Hades. It's like, this is one bad time in human history, right? But notice power was given to them over a fourth of the earth. And may I just back up very quickly? Remember what Jesus says in chapter one about death and Hades. Who has the keys to death and Hades? Jesus is in control, right? This, this is not some weird thing like Satan's totally ruling and reigning. Like, no, this is like God's sovereign control over this time period. You got to read your Bible to understand that, that God sovereignly works things like this. Read the book of Job and all the bad stuff that happened to Job and even stuff that the devil was given permission to do. At the very end of the book, it talks about, you know what? The Lord was the one who was sovereign over all of this and in control of all of it. God is a sovereign God. Power gives them, uh, power is given to them over a fourth of the earth. So uh, you might just make a little note in your notes or whatever. A fourth of the earth will be killed with sword, uh, with hunger, and with death by beasts of the earth. Okay, so uh, that's kind of interesting to me. A fourth of the earth um, is uh, killed. Okay, now real quick. Um, I want to, let's throw this little pie chart up here real quick. Um, this, uh, in 2015, here, here's, we have a little bit of the world's population of different religions. And just for the sake of conversation in the red, we have 31.2% of the world's population, uh, Christians. Okay. So, uh, today, and we can go to the next chart here today, as of last Sunday, and it was fun to look this up because the number was just going up. I'm like, I gotta copy and paste this number real quick. Uh, the world population as of last Sunday was uh, seven billion seven hundred and thirty-two thousand, or no, seven billion seven hundred and thirty-two million ninety thousand four hundred forty three four. What am I looking at? I, don't know, I can't look backwards. That messes me up. Um, okay, now let's say that um, that thirty-one point two percent of Christians are raptured. During the rapture, so that's two uh, billion, three hundred million there. Okay, uh, so that's whew, all right. They're left, or I'm sorry, they they leave us, or we leave them. Whatever you know what I mean. Christians are raptured, which leaves about five and a half billion people left behind. And then we have all sorts of other stuff. We have the the red horse. We have all this other stuff happening place. But just from this um, horse judgment alone. Um, we have another 1.3 billion people taken from the planet from this pale horse with uh, death and Hades uh, taking the population, taking a quarter of the population. So after this pale horse judgment, uh, there's about 4 billion. And that doesn't include maybe who the, the fiery red horse had taken. So this is just to kind of get some numbers rolling as we're reading this stuff. Like what's, what would that even be like? And just fascinating to, to think of. And um, Interesting, though, that in World War I, uh, 10 million people died in World War I. In World War II, about 50 million people uh, died. If you were to count and number every second, it would take 11 days for you to count to a million. It would take you 48 years to count to one and a half billion, Okay. So it's someone dying one per second, all right? These are the numbers that we're talking about. 
Imagine 1.5 billion corpses lying dead on planet Earth. And that's just the beginning of these birth pangs. It's the beginning of the time of tribulation. B.F. Skinner was a famous behavioral psychologist who for much of his life was an optimist. However, at the age of 78, his optimism began to fade. At the American Psychological Association Convention on September 1982, Skinner said this, Why are we not acting to save the world? The world is fatally ill. It is a very depressing way to end one's life. The argument that we have always solved our problems in the past and shall solve this one is like reassuring a dying man by pointing out that he has always recovered from his illness. When I wrote Beyond Freedom and Dignity, I was optimistic about the future. A decade ago, there was hope. Today, the world is fatally flawed. Francis Schaeffer calls this a modern world, a time of the dust of death. Moving on, the fifth seal. Let me hold on one sec. You know what? We're at 57 minutes. I think we're going to stop there. Man, Man, you guys are sweating. Saw some steam coming out of from some of uh, out of some of your ears. Uh, we'll look at the rest of the seals and the uh, going into even chapter uh, seven some next week. But this ought to, and if we have the worship team come on up, you know, a good question to ask is why does this matter? You know, why study this? What's the big deal? Um, why make a big deal about why even do the, some of the number crunching and look at these things? And there's a few things, um, you know, Revelation chapter one, verse three tells us that there's a blessing that comes to anyone who reads this book and who hears this book and who keeps this book. And so we want to be those who not only read it, but also those that hear it. And then we want to be those that understand how do we even you know, interpret this stuff. We want to go to rules of interpretation. There's a lot of studying that's done. And we want to, by the grace of God, be able to keep this uh, for our good and for his glory. We're beginning to read, you know, a number of chapters that show hell on earth, really. And, you know, it's a time that I certainly don't want to be in. It's a time I certainly don't want my loved ones to be in. It's a time I certainly don't want my friends to be in. I don't, I don't wish this on anybody. I desire people to be saved. And you know, that's really the Lord's heart too. When you read 1 Peter, there's people that mock like, well, when is the end going to come? It's been so long since you said this and we still haven't seen it. And, and Jesus is like through Peter saying like, what's the big rush? Like I'm actually being long suffering because I don't want anyone to perish. I want them to come to repentance. And so that's part of this as well. We've been given this church age, which is a time of evangelism of the world, of our local people, of our regional people, and of the global people, so that they might know God's saving ways, that they might know forgiveness of sin, that they might know and enjoy God as they were created to, and that they might fear him in a good, healthy, reverential fear and make him known. That's why it's important to know this, that we might become evangelists in this day and age. This is an age of grace. This is a dispensation where we have the church and the ministry of the church and the witness of the church. There will not be this during the tribulation period. And another thing, why are we studying this? John tells us and Peter tells us and Jesus tells us that as we study this and we begin to believe what's going to happen What manner of people ought we to be in conduct and holiness? John says, we do not want to be ashamed when he returns and when he comes. We want to be those that are found watching and waiting, eyes up, looking to the sky saying, even so, come Lord Jesus, come. And in the meantime, we are about the master's business here. And so as we close out today, man, there's repentance to be made in our lives. We see that God's wrath burns hot against sin. And that it's the Lamb of God who is pouring out wrath here. This is how he views sin. He takes it serious. 
So any bit of it in us that we've not repented of, that we haven't had godly sorrow for, today we can come before the altar. We can come before the lamb and we can say, Lord, we confess our sins to you. We're sorrowful for our sins. We repent of our sin. We want to be clean and cleared of these things. We want to walk in holiness that you are worthy of. We repent of our sins today. And Lord, we even want more of your Holy Spirit so that we can be those who are bold to go evangelize this lost and dying world. That they might escape these things. Jesus says it in the Olivet Discourse. Pray that you might escape these things. And he says in the chapters two and three of the church age in Revelation, he says, you know what? For those who overcome, if you're part of the faithful church of Philadelphia who will overcome, I will keep you from the hour of trial that will come upon the whole entire world. Let's be the church of Philadelphia today, amen? Let's be those that hear it, we read it, we keep it, We act upon it today with humility. We don't know exactly, well, one million, two billion, red horse, you know, red symbolizes, you know, it's like, okay, we're humble in those, in our understanding, but the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And the gist of it is God's wrath burns hot against sinners, but his mercy at the cross is just as strong. And there is forgiveness for anyone that would come to him, repent of their sins, And by faith, receive the work of Jesus at the cross. We're going to sing a final song. It's got a lyric in it that says, I was under your wrath. But through the cross, I'm reconciled to you. Have you been reconciled to Jesus? There was war with Jesus at one point in your life, but now that warfare can cease. Jesus has broken down the middle wall of separation and he extends an olive branch. He extends a hand and he would say, hey, do you want to be reconciled today? We can be friends. We can be teammates. We can be in this together. I've got beautiful stuff. The age of wrath will be over one day. Man, that just, I've got something for you that's just going to be so beautiful. Come to Jesus today. Receive reconciliation. Receive mercy. Will you stand with me today?